to life and lessons of William Carey. My theme is the plotting genius because we're going to discover that Carey was a genius. That is, he's going to have the equivalent of like a third grade education and yet he's going to end up in the Royal Society for Science because he's such a genius. He's going to be a college professor for 30 years even though the first time he ever steps into a college, he's the teacher. And uh, he's going to be the foremost Westerner who knows Sanskrit and uh, Bengali. He was a genius. And you and I can't copy that. That is, you either are or aren't a genius. That's a gift from God. And uh, we aren't. And so we're not trying to imitate his genius. And so the purpose of telling you his story is for you not to say, wow, he's different from me. Late in life, he was asked what was the key to his success. And he told his son that if anybody tells my story, and, and people were already telling his story, if after my removal anyone should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which you may judge of its correctness. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plot. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. So what is plotting? Next step. Obstacles? Next step. Sanctification? Next step. Prayer life? Next step. Evangelism? Next step. Whatever it is, if we're moving forward then we're making progress. And William Carey can teach us that. By God's grace, we can imitate his plotting no matter what level of genius we have, no matter where we are on the way the world measures those things. So let us persevere. So my theme verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'm going to try this quicker. It wasn't working well earlier, but that will free me up a little bit. All right, so let's start at the beginning. I like to start when people are born and end when people die. That is, that is kind of the goal in these church history sketches. So he was born in 1761 in a very small town right in flyover country in the middle of England, Pollersbury, and his family belonged to the Church of England. They were Anglicans. His dad, his dad was Edmund, and Edmund uh, was a poor. He was a weaver. Uh, he did uh, become in charge of the village a school for poor children. And so William was given a decent education. He was he had water dabbed on his forehead and said, I baptize you. And they said he was baptized. Of course, he wasn't baptized. He says he was wholly unacquainted with the scheme of salvation by Christ. Of real experimental religion, I scarcely heard anything till I was 14 years of age. That is, he was not reared in a Christian home. He was reared in a church home. And going to the Anglican church, going to any church, will, of course, not put you into a right relationship with God. But as a child, he was a bookworm. He devoured books. All the books he could get his hands on, there weren't a lot of books, but there were a lot of magazines. There was a train that ran near Paulus Ferry, and they would bring news of the world. And Terry would get a hold of everything he could get and read it. And he, and he developed a love for horticulture. I'm not going to be able to spend time on this, but... Later on, if, if I had time, I'd mention it during the 11 o'clock sermon that w- when he was in India later, he's going to build the largest botanical garden in Asia. He's going to have plants shipped to him from all over the world, and he's going to become famous as a botanist in his free time. What's interesting about that is that as a child, he had a skin condition that meant sunshine was hard on him, and he would have to avoid bright light, and then the Lord calls him as a missionary to southern India, to northern India. At age 14, he was apprenticed to a shoemaker. And in fact, if you, I ask my students when I teach on Carey, I never get to do a presentation like this. We cover Carey in eight minutes, you know. But when I ask my students, what do you know about William Carey? They always say, uh, shoes, right? Yeah, that's what he's famous for. He worked as a shoemaker. 
And in his teen years, he met a fellow shoemaker, John War. And John War was a believer. He was not a Baptist, but he was a dissenter, which means he was not part of the Church of England. That is, you, you were not required by law to go to the state church. But if you went to the state church, you had a chance in politics. It's so good to see Asa again. Asa was in my classes just a few years ago. Uh, you had a chance in politics. You couldn't really run for office if you were a dissenter. Uh, you had a chance to uh, have, be an officer in the military, which you could not do if you were a dissenter. You could go to Oxford or Cambridge, which you could not do as a dissenter. So a lot of people were in the Church of England just because, hey, that's the respectable way to live. A lot of social pressure to not be one of these people who is in a separate church. John War was a dissenter, and he started evangelizing to uh, Carrie constantly. Constantly talking to him about his sin, about his need of a savior, about the fact that his infant baptism did not save him. Now, war congregationalists sprinkled babies, but they didn't believe it saved. But Carey was a sinner. And in particular, he said he was one of these people who swore every time the shoe didn't turn out right. And he lied every chance that he got. You know, that is, he, he didn't value truth. He didn't value God's name. And he thought he was a pretty good guy. And most sinners feel like they're pretty good guys. Why? Because they don't compare themselves to God. Who do they compare themselves to? Other sinners. Yeah, and, and you can always find a sinner who's more sinful than you are. And so he felt like he's a pretty good guy. I lie and swear, but, you know, I don't kill and steal. And then one day, his boss gave him a job of going to a, a, a neighboring town, actually, with a little material transaction, a small amount of money. But he decided his boss would not know how much the other person gave him. And he pocketed a portion of the proceeds. And he thought, you know, nobody will ever know. He got caught. But before he got caught, because the guy who'd given him the money communicated with his boss, you know, thieves are always underrated the danger. He got caught. But before he ever got caught, his conscience was working on him. He says, this incident caused me to see much more of myself than I had ever done before. I realized, you know, I'm not a good person. It is a mercy from God when he allows circumstances to show us that we're not good people. All right, there is none good but God. And he needed to know that. There's none who does good. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks. And John Ward, the next time he witnessed to him, Carrie was listening a little better. And he got saved. He bowed his knee there, uh, first in his family, to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. But now, he's a believer, but he's not sure he wants to be a dissenter. You know, if, if, you, if you throw your lot in with those people, then you're pretty much giving up any hope of advancement in life. You say, well, he's... Got basically a third grade education. He lives in a small town and he works with shoes. He, he knew he, he could master information. He knew that he, he thought he could make his way in the world if he stayed in the system. And he went to a dissenters meeting with his friend John on February 10, 1779. And the pastor preached from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13. Will you be willing to go outside the camp bearing the reproach of Christ? Now, I'm not going to wrestle with Hebrews 13 with you this morning. Uh, it's a very difficult text, and I don't think the primary application is ecclesiastical separation. But the idea that you are willing to follow Christ, even though it means rejection, even though it means uh, recognizing the, 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 the sinfulness of your heart, the Lord used it in his heart to say, you know what? It's time for you to leave the Anglican church, and that's what he did. And he joined a little dissenters meeting at Hackleton, and he began growing in the Lord. He was willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Meanwhile, the Lord leads him to Dolly. Uh, we don't know anything about Dolly's background. We know that when she married, she had to sign the wedding certificate with an X because she wasn't literate. Uh, and that was not uncommon for English people and women in particular. Uh, educational opportunities were not extensive. They married on June 10th. And a year later, God blessed them with a little daughter, Anne. And then tragically, Anne died of a fever at age two. 
Dolly thought she was going to lose her husband as well. Carrie got the fever, and he survived it, but he lost all his hair. And, uh, and he was a very young man. I mean, if, if you're, if you're, he's 23 years old, and all of a sudden he's lost his hair. And so he gets a wig. Uh, he called it an ill-fitting wig. Whenever I quote Carrie, it'll be in this blue. Uh, he said, I got this wig that looked like a wig, you know. And, and I wore it, and I wore it, and I wore it. And, and, and I don't think this was a primary motivation for going to India as a missionary. But on his way to India, he thought, why am I wearing this stupid wig? And he threw it overboard and never wore it again. All right? he, he got rid of it um, after, uh, when he became a missionary. And so he's, this is his famous portrait. And uh, that's, that's the dome he wore for pretty much his whole life. Well, as he shares his testimony and as he studies the Bible, he begins to have ability in ex- of explaining truth. And they ask him to be one of the part-time exhorters. These dissenters cannot afford full-time pastors. And so they get what they can get. And even though he's a young Christian, he starts exhorting in this little dissenter's cottage. He's paying the bills by fixing shoes. And he meets some dissenters who believe in believer baptism. They're members of this brand new association of churches there in the middle of England called the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. I wish I could spend a few minutes talking about John Ryland Jr., John Sutcliffe, and Andrew Fuller. They're three of my heroes. Outstanding Baptist leaders. And they were all young men. They were all seven, eight, nine years, exactly, seven, eight, nine years older than Carrie. And so they're young pastors, and they are studying the Word, and they are dynamic preachers, and they're looking for disciples. And they encourage Carrie to investigate the baptism question. And so he does. He studies baptism and becomes convinced that baptism should be by immersion of a believer. He converts to Baptist views. October 5th, 1783, John Ryland Jr. baptizes him in a a river there. And he preaches on many that are first shall be last and the last first. Ryland later is going to say, I had no idea how this young shoe cobbler was going to illustrate my text. That is, he didn't seem to be anybody. He was just this young guy with, uh, with a young wife who's barely literate, and he's, he works with shoes. Who knew? Carrie was 22 now and a Baptist. And you know what? Getting saved does not immediately cause your life to turn into uh, sunshine and, and all joy. It's all joy in a sense, right? But sometimes circumstances get worse, and life turns very difficult for him. He's apprenticed. To Thomas Old, his boss, Mr. Nichols, dies fairly young. And a man named Thomas Old becomes the head of the shoe shop. And then Thomas Old passes away. Apparently running a shoe shop is uh, lethal. And so he's got to run this shoe shop. And he's not really a businessman. Furthermore, Old, his wife, was Dolly's sister. And the sister and her four children move in with him. And so now he's got the care of like six or seven people. And he's barely got enough money to survive. And so he opens a night school. You say, wait, 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 wait. I thought you said he had like a third or fourth grade education. Now he's teaching at a school. It's England. There's no compulsory public education. Wealthy people, all their kids get educated. Everybody else scrambles. And so if you got somebody who's willing to teach, you can teach. And so he opens a school and the village children come to his school. And so he's teaching and he is running a large family and he's doing shoes and he's exhorting in the assembly whenever he gets a chance. By 1784, in fact, I'll, I have a I have bullets for the very thing I was saying. Shoe shop, evening school, preaching every other week, trying to feed seven mouths, barely surviving financially. So we're a little surprised to discover that during this time, he's also teaching himself five languages. That is on the side, he's picking up French, Spanish, German, Italian, Greek, and Hebrew. Um, I'm not quite sure how he's doing that, but he's not me. He's, uh, he's intent on learning all he can learn. He joins 
Sutcliffe's church in Olney. He doesn't live in Olney, so it's kind of a labor to get over there. But the Olney church kind of looks out after him. And they say, oh, you ought to prepare for ordination to the gospel ministry. And so he does. He studies theology. He's, he's reading his Greek text. He's wrestling with Hebrew, which takes a little longer. But he's studying the scriptures. He's studying his Bible. And he is given a preaching trial, 1785, at the Olney church. And it does not go well. <laughs> the, uh, the only congregation says, oh, that was a fine effort, brother. But we're not ordaining you. You know, go back to the, uh, go back to the uh, drawing board. I know how I might have responded. He's not 18. He's 24. He's got a lot of irons in the fire. There are young men that I work with that you say, you're not ready, and they quit. But God gave grace to Carey to be a plotter. And what did he do for the next year? He preached. And, he, and by the way, the... Any young men in here called to preach, the best way to learn how to preach is to preach, right? And don't expect to be Martin Lloyd-Jones the first time you step into the pulpit. But if God's gifted you, it will develop. And uh, he preached. He just kept plodding along. There's the Baptist church at Olney. There's a new one there. We were in Olney a couple months ago, uh, but it's a brand new church now where Sucliffe used to be. And it used to be Sucliffe Baptist Church, and they changed the name when they got embarrassed by Sucliffe. But he became a pastor in the little village of Moulton, not very far from Olney. Late 1785. Uh, that is a photo of the Moulton Church that we took a couple months ago. A trip of a lifetime. Never been to UK before. We had a wonderful time. And it's Cary Baptist Church, they call it today. And he was pastoring there. And winning souls. You know, nobody ever becomes a missionary by going to a mission field. People are missionaries and then they take it overseas. They, they take that evangelism to other cultures. His preaching is getting better. And the only congregation, next time he preaches for them, they say, Wow! This guy has developed as a preacher. He didn't give up. And by unanimous vote, he's approved and formally ordained a year later. His three buddies, uh, Fuller, Sutcliffe, and Ryland, are present for the ordination. And they're excited about what God may do with this man. You say, you're clicking really fast. There's going to be no test later. All right, just, just, just telling you a story. All right, the bullet points are just to help you follow what I'm saying. Carrie convinces his wife, Dolly, to become a Baptist. It's interesting that he had been a Baptist for three years. Before he convinced Dolly to become one. I'm encouraged by that. She didn't just get baptized because he got baptized. She became convinced of this doctrine for herself. And Carrie himself got to baptize his wife. And during those years, they were blessed with Felix, William, and Peter. Three little boys. And that's, a, that's, that's an accurate photo from that time of the, of the three boys <laughs> with matching tie-dye shirts. So he pastors in Moulton for four years. And they're hard years. He's working very hard. He's seeing the church grow, and they're giving him a pittance of a salary. I mean, they did not pay him well for his ministry. Now, they were a bunch of poor people, but they did not pay him well. It seems that as he was growing, people around him were taking him for granted. And they didn't really want to pay him what he was worth. He was extremely happy, but he had this burden. This burden. He was in ministry, but he, he read a book. I don't think I have this book in my PowerPoint, but he read a book called uh, Captain Cook's Tours where James Cook, the great sailor, had traveled across the Pacific and visited the South Sea Islands and discovered Hawaii and sailed up and discovered the coast. You know that he, he charted the entire coast of Alaska? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the Cook was amazing. And then, of course, he went back to Hawaii and got killed. But anyway, Carey reads this book and says, who's taking the gospel to all those people? Who's out there in those islands? It's got, it's got to have teeming thousands of people who don't have the gospel. And if Cook can get there, the gospel can get there. And he hand-stitched a map of the world. And on that map, he wrote everything he knew about the world. 
He put down capital cities and populations and religions. He put down areas that had been reached by Western traders and areas that had not yet been. He just, he just buries information, piles it up there. And then he prays over that information regularly. Who is winning those people? They're trapped in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. Who's winning those people? But by 1789, Moulton will not increase his salary. He's got this large family and a much larger church, Harvey Lane Baptist Church, the building is no longer standing, in Leicester, contacts him and says, would you come be our pastor? And he agrees to do it. It looks like a much better situation. May 1789. And he discovers, and I don't know what the interview process was like, but he discovers that he has stepped from a sweet little country congregation that love him but don't pay him into a church that will pay him just fine. But they are not a sweet, loving congregation. They are a deeply divided, worldly church. And very shortly after arriving, he convinces the, the leaders of the church to say, you know what? We need to start this thing over. We need to dissolve the church and require everybody who's currently a member to reapply by a testimony of conversion. Because we've got a church full of unsafe people. And somehow they succeeded in doing that. They started the church over. And after they did, it was smaller. <laughs> you know, a lot of people did not have testimonies of conversion. And then Carrie, by God's grace, just starts winning people in Leicester and preaching the gospel. And the church starts growing. Uh, by the time he's going to leave for India, they're seeing six to eight conversions a week. And God gives them a little girl, their second daughter. And then tragically, she passes away as an infant. They lose another child. And these losses are really weighing on William and his wife. In 1792... I want to get into India, so we're skipping stuff here. Uh, you ought to read a good biography of Kerry, and I can recommend some later. But in 1792, this shoe cobbler, teaching night school, pastoring, he, he finally is able to give up the night school when he goes to Leicester. He publishes a book, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. And we would say heathen. What? That's a long title. And the subtitle's longer. I won't give that to you. In fact, the book's only about 80 pages long, so the title's almost as long as the book. But what is he talking about? What is this whole business about using means? Well, long story short, the particular Baptists in England tended to be Calvinistic. And after their establishment, that Calvinism got more and more and more kind of calcified so that by the mid-1700s, hyper-Calvinism had just taken over. And the churches were dying because nobody was evangelizing anybody. And Sutcliffe, Ryland, and especially Andrew Fuller said, you know what? You can believe in the sovereignty of God and still believe that you need to share your gospel with your neighbor. You don't have to pick. Nobody in the Bible picks. And the idea there is that the, the hyper-Calvinists, the John Gill type people, will say, listen, if that person is going to get saved, they're elect from the foundation of the world. They're going to get saved whatever you do. And Fuller and Sutcliffe and, and uh, uh, Ryland, they're reading Jonathan Edwards and they're reading their Bibles and they're saying, you know what? That person, election of the foundation of the world, will only get saved when you share the gospel with them because the means of their getting saved are ordained just like the result of their getting saved. That is, the only way anybody ever gets saved is through prayer and evangelism. And so use means for the conversion of the heathens. Don't sit here in Leicester expecting people on a South Sea island to get saved. Go to the South Sea island to share the gospel with them. Now that may seem real obvious to us. His book has five chapters. The first chapter is a shocker because the hyper-Calvinists were literally saying that the Great Commission was given to the apostles. It doesn't apply to us. And Kerry says, uh, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Hello? This is for everybody. And he proves it in that chapter. And then he goes through the history of missions. He discusses uh, the great, David Brainerd and, and John Elliott and the Moravians. And he says, this has been done. And it's successful. And then he takes 
all that information that was on his big map and put it into a chapter. I recommend reading this book, but skip chapter three <laughs> because all the data has changed. But he puts all the statistics in there and says, who's going to win these people? And then he says, you know what? People are going to object. People are going to say, you can't do it. It's too expensive. He says, the traders are going. Does the world have more money than God? God can afford it. He said, yeah, but you've got to learn foreign languages. I love how he answers this one. He says, ah, with a little effort, anybody can learn a foreign language. <laughs> okay, whatever you say, William. All right. But it's true that people who are selling spice and buying all that, they were learning the languages, and we can't. And then he says, and here's the plan. He actually lays out a plan for evangelizing the world. It's a great little book. And so he's getting the attention of other Baptists in the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. And in 1792, they have their annual meeting. And at the annual meeting, which was hosted by Andrew Fuller, he says, uh, William, I would like you to preach the keynote address at this conference, which is a high honor for a man who's still in his early 30s. He's 31 years old. And Carrie chooses as his text, Isaiah 54, which talks about uh, the, the, the spread of children. Now, it's a, it's a millennial text, but these were not dispensationalists. It's a millennial text about, about Israel spreading around the globe. But Paul sees an analogy in Galatians 4 to Christians spreading around the globe, and so does Carrie. And he preaches a sermon entitled, Expect Great Things. And then what does he say? Attempt Great Things. Expect Great Things. God's the one who does all the work anyway, right? So get busy. Get busy. Don't use God doing the work as an excuse to sit home. And the brethren were electrified. There was just an energy there. And then they went to bed, and they got up the next morning, they had breakfast. And, uh, and Brother Fuller was saying, all right, uh, it's been a wonderful conference. Let's pray about the things we've heard. And Carrie happened to be near him, and he tugged on his coat and said, is there nothing again going to be done, sir? We have been setting aside a day of fasting and prayer every two months for eight years. Are we going to send a missionary now? No, I'm not criticizing them for fasting and praying every two months for missions. But at some point, you've got to put feet to your prayers, right? Now's the time. And Fuller says, Right! And they did what Baptists do. They formed a committee to consider it. And they discussed it for several months. I'm not criticizing that either. I'm, I'm making it a joke, but I'm not criticizing it. Because you, do, you don't do something like launching world evangelization without thinking about it. But that fall, on October 2nd, in the home of one of the deacons of Andrew Fuller's church, actually his widow, the deacon had passed away, they established a particular Baptist society for the propagation of the gospel amongst the heathen. The PBS. P-G-A-H. That does not ring, so it became known as the Baptist Missionary Society. Baptist Missionary Society, the BMS. And now they need a missionary and a place. And in the providence of God, a medical doctor had just come home from India. They called it Bingle at the time, the northeastern corner of India. Had just come home from Bingle, whose name was John Thomas. Thomas was a Baptist. He, had, he was pretty fluent in Bengali. And he had a burden to go back to India. He had been there under military service. But maybe the Lord will call me back. So he heard about this missionary society and said, will you send me? Will you support me if I go back with my wife and kids? And they said, this is providential. The Lord has sent you for just such a time. And then Thomas writes to William Carey and says, I've heard that you have real facility with languages and that you've been praying over a map. I've been told that you might be a good candidate to go to India with me. Would you consider it? And that is a tough decision. You say, no, it should be easy. Important decisions in our lives are almost never easy. He wanted to be a missionary his whole life. He was good with languages. And this is what he's been praying about and dreaming about since he was, say, 14 years old. But Lester is doing great. In fact, they're, they're in a building program. They're expanding. You don't leave in the middle of a building program. 
They're seeing conversions every year. And his wife, Dolly, who has barely ever set foot outside Northamptonshire, does not want to go to India. Does not want to go to India. And this leads us to a very difficult part of the Kerry story. Because on January 9th, 1793, he had to decide. The society said, Kerry, will you go with the Thomases to India? And he said, yes, it's the Lord's will for me to do that. And he said, Dolly, we're going to India. And she said, I'm not going to India. You take my children to India, they're going to die there. By the way, Dolly's now pregnant with their next child. This would be number six, but two are in heaven. Uh, She's pregnant with their sixth child, and she said, I'm not going to India. What should Carrie have done? Well, you know, hindsight's 20-20. If you have a a right theology of priorities, I believe Carrie should have prayed and worked with Dolly until she said yes. But he was just burning to go to India. And he said, well, I'm going. I'm going. And I'm taking Felix. But you're right, the younger children probably aren't quite ready. So he plans to go. And that brings us to 1793 to 1800. You can go. I'm going to have a baby. There's no way I can get on a boat right now. And she probably was right about that. He said, all right, well, I'm going to go and establish a base and I'm going to come back for you. And she said, don't bother coming back. I'm not going to India. I am never going to India. And so he moves Dolly and the boys, uh, the younger boys, into her parents' home in Piddington. Um, And then he gets on board a British ship. Now, there is a complication. The complication is that the British East India Company that runs India has outlawed missionaries. They've outlawed mission. Why? Because Indians are very, were very docile people. They were pretty easy. Hindus, you know, they're in the transmigration. This life's not so great. Next one will be better. Turns out that the, the British discovered that for a while, they pretty much did what you asked them. Now, that's going to change. You know, give it another 50 years and sepoy mutinies are going to start happening. But at this point, they're finding the Indians pretty easy to manage unless you attack their religion or you win them to Christianity. Christians are harder to manage. They don't even believe in caste. And so missions is bad for business. And they had a law law against it. So you couldn't get, as a missionary, a pass to go to India. And they had gotten on a British ship to go, and it was discovered that they didn't have a legal pass, and they were kicked off. So how are they going to get there? Well, they book passage on a Danish ship, which doesn't follow the same rules. It's still going to be a hard time at the other end when they have to get into the country. But in the meantime, after they kicked off the British ship... They go to Piddington, and he and Thomas beg Dolly to come, and she says, no way, I'm not going. She's just had a new baby. They named him Jabez. She's got a three-year-old and a five-year-old, four- or five-year-old. I'm not going. So they go to London, and then they, Thomas says, we've got to try one more time. You can't go off and leave your wife. And they go, and they beg her to go, and her sister Kitty was present, and Kitty said, Dorothy, I'll go with you, which was an incredible sacrifice. I mean, Kitty wasn't called to be a missionary, but she says, I'll go with you. I'll help you. And Dorothy agrees to go. Well, that means we've got to raise money for five more, six more people. <laughs> uh, no, five more people. Dorothy, Kitty, and these three boys. And Andrew Fuller amazingly raises all the money in like four days. It's, it's, it's an incredible outpouring. And they set sail on the Chrome Princess of Maria, May 1793, to India. Dolly and Kitty do not travel well. I'm not criticizing that. I don't do boats well myself. Gary uh, and Thomas have devotions morning and evening. They see sailors saved on the way. They arrived November 11th. So if you notice, that was about a six-month voyage. They also got stopped for about a month south of Africa, uh, bad times. But they arrive in India. They're on a Danish ship. They're not licensed to live in India. So they, they disembark on a small boat and sneak into the country. They're in India. And they're in Calcutta. And Calcutta is swarming with people. Once they're in Calcutta, the British authorities are not going to find them. They're welcomed by villagers. But they discover that evangelizing Calcutta Indians is really hard. Because Calcutta Indians have been under British rule for a while. And they say, Christian religion, devil religion. 
Christians much drink, much do wrong, much beat, much abuse others. That's their knowledge of Westerners. And so evangelizing is very, very difficult. We are right up here. Oh, it's disappearing. Upper right corner there is where a bingo is. And then he finds out that he's there with a guy who has a big heart and is a little unbalanced. That is Thomas. They've been given a certain amount of money to last them for a year. Thomas decides that if he's going to have any impact, he needs to reestablish his medical practice. And he's got to impress these Indians. So he actually hires um, a, a carriage and he burns through most of their missions funds in the first couple of months. And now Kerry's got this large family in Bengal and, and they have almost no money. Furthermore, word comes from England that one of the reasons Thomas wanted to go to India as a missionary was because he had a bunch of debt in England that he was owing somebody. Twelve servants and a carriage. Carries, meanwhile, find a tiny little hut that they pack into and just try to subsist on almost nothing. They barely have any food to eat. And it was tough. Dolly, Felix, William, they all got dysentery, which is pretty common when you change diets like that and drink the water. Uh, they had what I could only call a ministry of complaining. That is, everything was, a, was, was bad. And Carrie is trying to do missions work and everyone around him. He himself said, if my family were but hardy in the work, I should find a great burden removed. But they're not. They're not in, in with him. So he's evangelizing. In less than a year, Carrie is speaking fluent Bengali. I mean, he is translating the book of Matthew in the first four years he's in the country. Uh, he's gifted. But as he evangelizes and evangelizes, nobody's getting saved. Cynical Indians. So they move. Uh, they, it became untenable there in uh, Calcutta. So they moved to the Sunderbans. The Sunderbans are a really dangerous place. It was a three-day boat ride, long ways, swampy area, teeming with crocodiles, tigers, and large snakes. Uh, for some you guys, hunters, wrestlers, it's probably great. But, um, but for we city folk, this sounds a little bit uh, intimidating. His wife gets sick. His sister-in-law, Kitty, is like, I didn't know you were taking me into the jungle. He's got these four children, a brand new baby, Life is difficult. And then when they get there, the person who told them they were going to loan them a house, the whole, they loaned it to somebody else. And there's nowhere to live. Why, are you, why am I telling you all these details? Mission life is not glamorous. And almost nothing goes according to plan. Happens that the Lord provides. There was a guy by the name of Charles Short there. He was a British military man. Hospitable. He wasn't a believer. But he said, you know what? I got a big house. You can live with me. And he falls in love with Kitty. And they get married. And the good news is, that after they got married, William Carey led them both to Christ. And uh, Short got, married, got saved. Praise the Lord. He also and I, I hired a translator who worked with him for years. And I'm not going to say much about Ram Ram Basu. He's an interesting person. So how is he supporting his family? He starts a little farm. He's studying Bengali. He's witnessing all the time. Some Westerners are joining his church. So he gets a little church going there in the Sunderbats. It's small. Some Indians are showing up. They're adjusting to India. But nobody is getting saved. He has yet to see a single Hindu get saved. He's pouring himself into it. Am I sure God called me here? Then he gets a letter from John Thomas who says, you know what? There's an opportunity at Mudnabadi. You want to join me there? It's a 250 mile journey up the river. And Carrie's family is like, we got to move again? Seriously? And Carrie said, I can't evangelize down here while supporting myself with farming. It's a job. It's a job managing an indigo plantation. And indigo is this plant that they get blue dye from, and it it, it grows in water, so it's really a a dirty, nasty job. But he's called to be the foreman of a large indigo plantation. And he says, i got to do it. So they make this long journey so that he can earn the 250 pounds a year salary. He writes home and says, you guys don't need to send me support anymore. 
I've got a job making 250 pounds a year. And Andrew Fuller writes back and said, we didn't send you there to be a businessman. We sent you there to be a missionary. How dare you? And Carrie goes, oh, yeah, uh, I plan on donating most of the money. <laughs> I'm still a missionary. In fact, I'm going to evangelize my indigo plantation every day, having devotions. And then little Peter gets malaria. Carrie does, too. You're going to get malaria eventually in that climate. And Peter dies. He's five years old. And this is exactly what Dolly said was going to happen. You take my kids to that place, they're going to die there. And they bury little Peter. And Dolly is so shaken by this. Kitty doesn't go with him to move the body. So her main, her sister, her stay there is gone. Carrie is just, he's working a full-time job and evangelizing all the time and studying Bengali. And she begins to suffer from mental illness. A mental illness that is going to get worse and worse and worse over the years. God blesses them with their last child, little Jonathan, in January of 1796. Shortly thereafter, Kitty's mental illness becomes so bad that Carrie can write, my poor wife must be considered as insane and is the occasion of great sorrow. That is, she's losing uh, all ability to assess reality. She's dangerous. They have to keep sharp things from her, literally. And now Carrie has a wife who's unhinged and a large family and a full-time job, and he's trying to be a missionary. And it is, it is, these are tough years. And they're tough years for Kitty. You know, I, I don't mean to just make it about Carrie, but this is his story. But poor Kitty. Um, I, I'm, yeah, that's a typo. Yeah, Kitty is not declining. She may be declining, but Dolly's the one I'm talking about. As far as I know, Kitty was dead by this, so I don't know. But Dolly's the one who's declining. Carrie, meanwhile, is gathering 200 to 600 Hindus and Muslims and preaching to them regularly. And they're interested. They stay after his sermons and have conversations that can go for an hour or two. They want to know about this Christian God. It is so foreign to anything they've ever heard. Dozens would talk with him. And he doesn't see a single conversion. He is begging them to believe in Jesus. And he doesn't see a single conversion. He organizes the church because there are foreigners around. People are joining. John Fountain arrives to help him in the ministry. Fountain is a gifted young man. He's a blessing. He starts a little school for Indians. And then three years later, he gets sick and dies at the age of 33. That is malaria gets him. And Kerry loses his uh, helper. Thomas, meanwhile, is running another indigo factory. And he becomes so unstable that he has to be removed from the job. And he just starts wandering around India doing kind of random medical practice. He's not doing missions at all. And then a monsoon comes. And destroys the indigo plantation. Just totally wrecks it. It's going to take a massive amount of money to rebuild. It's 1799. He's been there now for seven, six years. He moves his family again. This time to Kitterpore, some miles away. He settles in. He starts building a new ministry. When am I going to be a missionary? And we'll pick up the story there at 11 o'clock. But the, what's the lesson from this morning? Take the next step. Take the next step. Who is in control of monsoons and malaria? God's in control. And you never know, you never fully know, why God's allowing what He's allowing. While everything out there is falling apart, God is doing things in here. If by grace and faith, we will take the next step. And that's what Carrie did. At 11 o'clock, we will consider turning points. Because we need turning points. We're discouraged at this point. 